You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. It's great to be with you guys today. Uh, uh, we are here uh, the weekend, the week after the uh, race uh, events in uh, in Charlottesville. Uh, the uh, the the stunningly delayed denunciation by Donald Trump of of such people. Uh, and uh, the national debate on race. And as I saw this unfold this weekend, and I'm horrified by um, some of the comments I have seen and the lack of action of a very weak president, um, I thought about what race really means in the context of immigration. Uh, Because when uh, these Nazis uh, uh, march with Polynesian tiki torches, uh, in Charlottesville, it's not just black and white that they're out there uh, um, uh, marching against. Uh, they are marching against immigrants uh, and people who don't believe as they do, people who don't uh, look as they do. Uh, and I, I think it brings home, uh, and I think actually in some ways as events in Charlottesville may be cathartic uh, and allow race to actually be addressed in America in a more thoughtful Adult way. Um, I mean, a lot of times we have these national events, and people give their their speeches, and then they walk away, and we just forget about. It. We move on. To, we move on to the next crisis or the next problem or the next soccer game or World Series game. We just kind of ignore what what this problem is, while there is this festering. Uh, uh, bed of racist sentiment in the United States. People who now feel free to walk around with their faces uncovered. I mean, these butterflies that were out there marching now complaining that, uh, hey, the police came after me or I lost my job or, you know, th- there's consequences. We, we have this wonderful thing in America called freedom of speech, which means the government cannot uh, in, uh, in any way hinder your ability to express yourself unless it becomes a danger uh, to others. Uh, doesn't mean private citizens have to recognize that, and certainly private employers do not have any obligation to recognize freedom of speech. Um, and so uh, at least uh, several of these uh, young men that are at this rally have lost uh, their jobs as a result of this. And, and the tragedy of the young woman who was killed and how she has been treated in the alt-right media and in this racist uh, media is just stunning. Uh, but I think it also gives us an opportunity uh, to look more deeply uh, at these sentiments that are out there, uh, I would encourage you all to uh, Google the words uh, "pyramid of racism," and you'll come up ultimately with an article uh, at uh, attn.com, which is a chart that defines the problems with the definition of racism. Because we don't really I think a lot of us have our own ideas of what racism is. Well, racism is lynching black people, or racism is calling people names. Um, but the idea of what is racism, I think, is, is it's one of those words that you think you know what it means, but you probably don't. Um, nothing is uh, probably as un, as as uh, not not more complicated than racism, but it certainly has within it an extraordinary amount of uh, of, uh, of uh, sentiment. Uh, and depending on where you are in this pyramid, depending on where you are on the race scale, uh, I, I think you have a different view of, of what racism actually is. And I think it's important for all of us, you know, white or black, to understand where others come from in this. 
uh, because by understanding the other side, I think we can get a much better appreciation and certainly a much deeper uh, feeling for how others are uh, offended or affected by the things that are said and done. Um, and just as a great example, in this in this pyramid uh, at uh, attn.com on pyramid of racism, the very top, of course, you have lynching. Of course, that's the ultimate racist act: uh, hate crimes, swastikas. KKK, burning crosses, the N-word, racial slurs, racist jokes, neo-Nazis, they're all above the line. And what I love about this pyramid is that it asks you the question. And, it's, and, and the pyramid is full of, of words, things like um, uh, school-to-prison pipeline, uh, uh, anti-immigration policies, housing discrimination, blaming the victim, uh, color blindness, it's just a joke, um, not speaking up, uh, not challenging racial jokes. Where do you draw the line? Where where on the pyramid is your line? Uh, in the context of immigration, I mean, Im- immigration is itself a major issue for uh, uh, these these fascists and, and Nazis. Uh, I think that uh, Senator Kennedy, uh, Senator Cruz, not not a guy uh, David knows that I would be supporting in any primary for any position. I think he uh, actually said it best. He. Uh, I thought his statement, uh, which was issued immediately after these uh, these events on Saturday, was forceful. I thought it was strong. I thought it was dignified. Um, and then some some uh, some numbnuts New York Times reporter said something you know smarmy to Cruz on Twitter, and his response I thought was terrific. He says, "These guys, they you think I get any special privilege by being a, a Cuban American? You know the reality is immigrants are just as much a focus." Of this, but they don't have the long-standing effect of racism. But they immigrants walk into a situation where there is this institutional racism or institutional bias, um, and it, it it is rare that you would see somebody like me who's not guilty of something on this scale. Uh, I mean, uh, our reality is we grew up in a very different society. Um, uh, this summer. Uh, when I went went to speak to my high school graduation as the commitment speaker, uh, I drove through the town that I grew up in uh, in up in, in New Jersey before I moved to upstate New York. Now the upstate New York town is very white. Uh, I think we had two African American kids in our whole high school. It's a very white school. Um, and uh, but I drove through the town in Jersey where I moved from. That, that town in North Bergen is a very diverse town. Uh, people of all all colors uh, and religions live there, um, but I, I, I see there the division. You know, in this part of town live these people, in that part of town live these people, and America continues to say that we want to overcome racism, say that we want to overcome uh, the problem of uh, of. Um, uh, you know, identifying people by their skin color or by their or by their race or their religion, but we don't do it. We just don't do it. Um, and one of the things I one of the reasons I always speak out so loudly on immigration is not only because it's an issue near and dear to my heart, because I understand how the process works. I understand the power, the positive power of immigration to America. Uh, these events in Charlottesville really bring us more in focus as to the, the power of race in America and what we as a country are missing out on by not, you know, finally addressing these issues and coming to terms with them. Uh, there are a few societies in the world. I mean, there's nothing I can tell you that says, oh, look at Sweden. They've done a great job at this. 
very few societies have dealt with this issue at all, let alone effectively. Uh, and, um, you know, America should figure out a way to lead the way. Uh, obviously, we don't have a president who either cares or believes it's important or even views it's against his interest to speak out on this. But I was very glad to see uh, at least some members of the GOP actively searching out ways to more effectively deal with this issue. Uh, but it, it is it is disturbing to see uh, this continue to take place, uh, and then the equation of this of Nazis Nazis to Black Lives protesters, Black Lives Matters protesters, who who are in no way can you equate these two types of people? You just you just can't. Uh, I particularly loved uh, Senator Orrin Hatch's tweet, and I you know I think Hatch should retire uh, at the end of his term, but. Uh, I thought, uh, for an 82-year-old guy, I thought his tweet was pretty on point uh, and tragically remindful of what who these people really, really are. When he says, my brother died fighting the Nazis, I'll be damned if I'm going to let them uh, come back into power today, uh, or something to that effect. I, I just thought it was powerful, because his brother, in fact, did die in World War II, was killed in World War II and he, as a U.S. soldier, his older brother and I think that these people are Nazis. You know, we we won this war. We got rid of these people. They don't have an ideology that is in any way helpful to anybody. Uh, you know, the butterflies here that talk about the, the the blacks or the Jews or the immigrants or the Mexicans or all the Chinese are all to blame for my situation. It's, there's really only one person to blame for your situation, and that's you. You know, there is not an institutional bias against white people in America. It just doesn't exist. Uh, and to, to argue that you are somehow negatively impacted, that we need to celebrate white pride, you know, America wasn't founded on white pride. My friends founded on ideas, ideas that came from Europe, that came from all parts of Europe, ideas that came from the ancient Greeks, Ideas that came from Egyptians, ideas that came from uh, ancient uh, ancient Jews, uh, the Hebrews of the Old Testament. These ideas are what America is founded upon, not race, not race at all. Um, you know, and America has, you know, again, a long history of dealing not equitably with this issue, uh, not not truly effectively living up to the idea that all men are created equal. But I, I, the ideal stands, and I think we as a country are fully capable of living up to that ideal. Uh, and part of that is in the immigration context. The people that Trump has around him, uh, Stephen Miller, who has been writing uh, all the am- immigration stuff coming out of the White House, was trained and, and, and guided at, at college, at Duke, by Richard Spencer, who is now one of the one of the supposed leaders of the Nazi movement in America? That guy is sitting literally next door to the president of the United States. It gives you a context for the anti-immigration policies. If you are offended by what happened in Charlottesville, you should be equally offended by the bill proposed by Trump, Cotton, and Purdue. These all come from the same mother. They all come from the same source. They're all based upon race. They're not based upon economics, not in any stretch of the imagination, because there is literally no economic evidence to support 
the idea that if we eliminated immigration to America, that we would be better off as a country. There is literally zero evidence to support that. Uh, yet there is mountains of evidence to support the fact that robust immigration is great for America economically, socially, and societally. Um, I, I, would, I would challenge people to think about immigration in the context of race. You know, we no longer get a lot of Brits coming to America, although we get our first share of Canadians coming in, David. Plenty of Canadians coming down here. Um, but most of the people we come in don't look like white Americans, and yet they bring the same ideals, the same desires for success, and the same desires for freedom that our forefathers brought here, that my grandparents brought here. Uh, as a country, we have something very special to offer. You know, we can't and should never become Fortress America. Uh, we need to really focus ourselves on making us not only a more welcoming place, but a better country as a result of the immigrants that come here. I think the the amount of immigration we've seen over the last 40 years has been robustly wonderful for America. Uh, it is it is continued uh, can allowed us to lead the world economically, socially, and even militarily. But should we cut that off? Should we follow the Miller, Bannon, Trump, Nazi model? Should we proceed down that lane? We will regret it in a generation. We will have a society that is closed-minded, that is uh, small mentally, and we will no longer be viewed and no longer will be the greatest country in the world. Let's take a break here on America's Web Radio. Si usted ha casado con un ciudadano o tiene problemas con inmigración o tiene una oferta de trabajo, llama a los abogados de Cook Immigration Partners. Somos en su lado. Con más de 100 años de experiencia en la ley de inmigración, conocemos la ley y sabemos cómo ayudarle. Llámanos hoy a las 404-816-8611, a las 404-816-8611, o visítenos al www.immigration.net. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business, or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. Um, there is, uh, we talked last week a lot about the... Um, uh, the Purdue Cotton Bill, um, but there was one thing I forgot to mention last week. Did we remember we talked about the fact that the Purdue Cotton Trump uh, Bill would eliminate family immigration, all categories? They're all gone, and the only quote family immigration would be spouses of U.S. citizens and children under eighteen of U.S. citizens. And permanent residence. That that that's it. Uh, there'd be a quote a special visa for parents to come in. 
uh, but that it's, it's a meaningless number, so it's gone. So basically, you're going to take what is now about 435,000 family-based visas and literally just put an X through them. On the employment-based side, it eliminates investor visas for green cards. Uh, it eliminates uh, extraordinary ability green cards. It eliminates uh, skilled worker green cards, eliminate professional green cards, and basically says we're going to have a point system, and we're only going to we're going to take our hundred and four our current hundred and forty thousand employment based green cards. We're going to cut that down to eighty. The one thing they don't change in this bill, Dave, and one of the big problems with our current employment based system is that it's not 140,000 green cards for people to work in the country every year. Those 140,000 green cards actually also count and have to count spouses and children. So the average family size statistically for immigration is three. So really there's only about 45,000, 43,000 actual jobs people that people immigrate to America for, 43,000 a year. Uh, this bill cuts 140 to 80, leaves this this criteria in place, so it's really only about 27,000 jobs a year. But then, then this is where it gets even trickier, which we didn't talk about last week. This bill then subtracts from that 80,000 anybody who had been, quote, paroled into the United States, think of DACA as an example, who then adjusts status. So if you've been paroled in the country, and let's say you marry a U.S. citizen, that is counted against the 80,000 cap. Now, I can't tell you exactly how many people are adjusted every year in that category, but I can tell you it's probably tens of thousands. So you're actually going to eliminate that 80,000, maybe down to 50,000, maybe down to 40,000. So basically, you're eliminating employment-based immigration to America. This is, this is where it becomes truly a joke, and really helps you understand where Cotton, Purdue, Trump, Miller, Bannon are coming from. It's really about race. Really about race. We have in our economy today 170 million jobs. Today, the Department of Labor announced last Friday, there are 6.5 million open jobs in America today. 6.5 million open jobs. Did I mention that? 6.5 million open jobs in America today. What kind of dent is 140,000? It's like a pimple on the butt of a flea. It's a meaningless number in the context. And this idea that immigrants are stealing your job, that's just a joke. Uh, it's just a joke. Because you're not stealing your job. They're actually creating jobs that you can then work in. A study a couple of years pointed out for every H-1B that comes in the country and works in the United States, that leads to the creation of five additional jobs. And not just for immigration lawyers, but five additional jobs. The, the numbers here speak so loudly in favor of, of immigration and positive immigration that there is no way that the Cotton, Purdue, uh, Trump anti-immigration bill of 2017 should ever see the light of day. Just checked this morning. Still only two co-sponsors. 
Nobody's going to look at this bill. It's never going to have a vote in the House. It's never going to be amended. It is garbage. You can't amend garbage. You can't fix garbage. And that bill, Senator Cotton, and my beloved Senator Perdue are just garbage. Honestly, I hope, Senator Perdue, that this bill is like a rock around your neck in the next election. Not that you should run for re-election, but if it is, I hope it just hangs there. Uh, because this this is a testament to your hypocrisy. Now, another study just came out um, just a couple days ago, uh, and it's published in the American Economic Association Journal. It's a great question. How much does immigration boost innovation? Great question. Um, this study, which is published by Jennifer Hunt and Marjolaine gautier Loswell. I don't know anything else about them. Um, and this was published back in 2010, but just making the rounds today, that um, for every one percentage increase in immigrant college graduates' population share, it increases patents per capita by 9 to 18%. I mean, that's an, a remarkable, a remarkable correlation uh, between those two types of, of events. I mean, immigration clearly creates innovation, it creates jobs, uh, and it helps us better ourselves as a society. Um, And, I mean, my hope, ultimately, uh, is that uh, we don't have to have an anti-immigration conversation in the Senate. Uh, The House is probably going to vote on their anti-immigration bill, but I, I hope somebody points out that there is very little difference, if any difference, between the anti-immigration movement, there's really no daylight at all between the anti-immigration movement and the Nazis and the fascists and the KKK who marched in Charlottesville. There's just not. Um, try to find that daylight and let me know. You can write to me at david at americaswebradio.com or chuck at immigration.net. Let me know if you can see daylight there. I don't see any daylight there. Uh, immigration levels should be directly tied. If we really want to be correct about that, we want to do it the right way, which I believe we should, immigration levels should be tied directly to the economy. And we should be looking for people that benefit our economy. Not this points. Point systems, you know, the joke about the point system is they don't really effectively work. The point system that, that Purdue uh, and... Um, uh, Cotton and Trump came up with. Uh, we talked last week. I don't pass the test. David certainly doesn't pass the test. I mean, you probably don't pass the test. And it's designed uh, not to pass the test. And, and we look at uh, we look at countries like Canada and Australia that have seen really the failures of a point system. The Economist last year uh, did a really good argument, a really good article about Australia's immigration system, um, but about the point system and why it fails, what what the problem is. Um, In 1979, Australia created a process for screening immigrants uh, called the, quote, numerically weighted multi-factor assessment system, or NUMAS. That just sounds so British, doesn't it? It just sounds so mission. Uh, So it allocates points for youth, education, English-speaking ability, and the possession of needed skills. Immigrants who scored highly were allowed to settle. This process was tweaked over the years, um, uh, but rather 
than accepting immigrants because employers wanted them. That's our system. Australia let people in who seemed to have what the country needed, and it would stuff the land with human capital. Okay, uh, But the problem that they see is that you bring people in who don't have jobs rather than them coming here for uh, the jobs that are already in place, which is what the American system has done over the last several years. Uh, in Canada, there's a great article uh, written a number of years ago about the point system failures. Uh, for an example, uh, an architect named Yusoli Taiwu, an architect who immigrated to Canada from Nigeria with his wife three years ago, can't find a job. Okay, Just because you need the services of immigrants with PhDs, but then prevent them from working in their chosen fear and pay them employment, unemployment insurance instead... That's the Canadian immigration system. You know, for example, uh, if you have a job offer, you get 10 points, and the so-called suitability requirement gives you another 10. But if you have a PhD and you speak proper English, you get 49 points. Uh, if you get another 21 points, if you have four years' experience, another 10 if you're between 21 and 49. Uh, so you can easily come to Canada and have no job offer. I mean, what is the point of that? That does not help your economy to bring in labor when you don't have jobs. I much prefer our system uh, where we have a process whereby uh, you can immigrate to America if you invest in her and if you have a job and an employer sponsors you or you have a certain skill set, you have extraordinary ability, which basically guarantees you a job. This idea that we should look to Canada and Australia for their systems for immigration when we pointedly ignore their their success in gun control and in health care, why do we think all of a sudden they have the corner on immigration figured out when we don't think they have it figured out on gun control or on health care? Uh, it, it is hypocrisy uh, weighed large. Uh, and, in fact, their system on, on immigration we know doesn't work. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's relatively uh, pointless. Um, and as this... As this process goes forward, as we as we look at them talking about this point system, I think you're going to see that it's never going to happen. Um, and uh, it's uh, what I think is going to happen. Dave, here's my prediction. You want to write this down in my list of predictions, uh, which almost always happen. <clears throat> Congress will ultimately address immigration, and they will have a point system pilot program. And they will allocate, let's say, 50,000 green cards or 20,000 green cards a year to this point system. And they will require those people probably to come in on conditional green cards. And then, look, in two years, if you don't have a job, you've got to go home. If in two years you haven't made X dollars, you have to go home. I think that is uh, much more likely to happen and have a kind of a hybrid system where you retain the job-focused, uh, investment-focused process we currently have, but experiment with the point system, maybe even allowing states to have, you know, why don't we have every state gets a thousand green cards a year? David, you know, we have this currently in place. I don't know if you know this or not, for doctors, uh, called the Conrad 30 program. Every state gets to sponsor up to 30 foreign doctors a year who've gone to graduate, who've gone to medical school in the United States. To work in rural and uh, rural areas, or, or what they call medically underserved areas, um, 
and it works wildly effectively. And the states are the one that controls that program. I wouldn't mind saying every state you get a thousand. Um, 50,000 green cards. You get 1,000 green cards a year. Uh, you can do with them as you please so long as they meet some basic criteria. Let's say income criteria or, or tax criteria or investment criteria. I would love to see something like that happen because I think that uh, would actually really be beneficial to the U.S. economy. Uh, David, let's take our next break here on the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. Soy Charles Cook, el jefe del grupo de abogados Cook Immigration Partners. Estoy en su lado. Con más de 20 años de experiencia con la ley de inmigración, conozco cómo ayudarle. Sé la ley y sé que alguna gente podemos ayudar. Llámanos hoy a las 404-816-8611. A las 404-816-8611. O visítenos en el internet. www.immigration.net Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national. Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back uh, to America's Web Radio Um David, we've got um, a problem in our immigration courts. Um, the uh, the uh, folks out of the SPLC have been very focused uh, on Atlanta and Stewart uh, in uh, in uh, in their uh, look at, immig- at immigration judges and the unfairness and prejudice in the system. Uh, our immigration court here in Atlanta has recently expanded from five judges to eight judges, and they're looking to hire six more judges in Atlanta. Uh, David, you don't have a law degree, do you? Because literally you need a law degree and seven years of experience. No immigration experience required. Do you think I should apply? I'd probably be a good judge, don't you think? You should, yeah. I should apply, don't you think? There are some people I'd like to deport. Unfortunately, they're U.S. citizens. That's going to be a problem, don't you think? It's going to be a problem. Uh, the, AC, uh, the SPLC uh, sent a letter to the Executive Office of Immigration Review back in March uh, looking at the bonds, for example, that is set in Atlanta. Uh, the average bond in Atlanta is 41% higher than the national interest for no, no reason, no reason whatsoever. Um, and uh, the Lisa Graybill, who is the SPLC deputy director, said this, quotes, immigration judges must be impartial. But our findings show that Atlanta immigration court judges regularly flout the ethical standards that govern their conduct. Quote, while the, the evidence of bias and prejudice should disturb anyone who believes in neutrality of tribunals in this country, it can be a matter of life or death for the immigrants who appear in front of these judges. Quote, a 90%, 98% denial rate on asylum applications compared to a national average of 57% means that some of these men women and children are almost certainly being sent home to die. The judges must be held accountable. 
Uh, this is a this is a is a great uh, um, work by the SPLC who spent uh, a lot of time monitoring the judges. They actually worked with Emory University law students and some of my law students. And for my class, I teach at Emory Law School. Uh, went in. Uh, they observed uh, proceedings involving 196 respondents and five different judges. Uh, offering a look into a court system that, despite being open to the public, is rarely attended by anyone other than immigrants, their families, and their lawyers. Quote, These observations confirm the Atlanta Immigration Court's reputation as a system where judges fail to respect the rule of law, said Professor Haley Ludston of Emory Law School, who I don't know, by the way, who led the lawsuits in their court monitoring. Quote, The practices that we observed suggest that these judges conduct their courts in a way that clearly discourage fair adjudications. Um... Um, there have been, you know, I, I, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna go on and quote the article, but you should uh, really uh, read uh, the observations, um, including one judge uh, who routinely leaned back in his chair, placed his head in his hands, and closed his eyes. He held this position for more than 20 minutes as a woman seeking asylum described the murders of her parents and siblings. And then denied her case. Um, now it, it, it's it's really stunning uh, to read this, uh, and I would encourage you uh, to uh, to take a look at this and um, really understand what the immigration court system is like, uh, especially here in Atlanta, uh, where I have practiced now for almost twenty five years. Uh, and the system itself, and, I, and here's one of our problems, those of us who practice here for many, many years, is we've seen it. And we, unfortunately, become tone deaf to how bad it is. And it's only when we step out to other courts, other immigration courts, other real courts, because uh, immigration court, as we know, is not a real court, um, uh, is, uh, is problematic uh, because we we come to expect to lose. Now, we don't lose that off on an immigration court, and we advise clients accordingly on, on stuff. But you have to understand that uh, uh, as a lawyer, we have an obligation to fight tooth and nail on every case, even ones we think we may lose. And you get discouraged or dissuaded from that by the judges uh, who say, look, I'll give you X if you dismiss the case. It's like, no, I don't want to dismiss the case. We have found ourselves for the last decade preparing our cases for the appeals court even before we have the trial because we know with certain judges and certain types of cases what that outcome will be. But we also know that if we can set the record correctly that we have a legitimate chance of prevailing on appeal. We know that the uh, judges uh, in Atlanta are routinely and in some cases more than 50% of the time on the merits, reversed by the Board of Immigration Appeals. If there was a federal district court judge who was reversed 50% of the time on appeals, they would impeach him and remove him from the bench. They would, or they would force him to resign. Um, um, It is something uh, that... uh, um, uh, we have to be very, very focused on uh, as lawyers uh, and really um, uh, uh, try to understand in a much more forceful way uh, what is uh, actually going to happen 
in people's cases and really look at how uh, the immigration courts shape and change the lives. Now, there's another uh, article. The SPLC also just sent a actually a legal complaint uh, to the Executive Office of Immigration Review uh, on the on two, on maybe all the judges, but certainly two of the judges in Stewart, Georgia, uh, Judge Trimble and Judge Arrington. Uh, this complaint uh, details. Uh, what can only be called judicial misconduct, uh, uh, certainly uh, by um, uh, uh, by Judge Arrington, uh, and uh, it is uh, something that the board and executive office of immigration review have been fully aware of uh, for a long time, because there have been a number of complaints that have been filed against her, um, and yet. The Board of, Immigra- Board of Immigration Appeals, the uh, Executive Office of Immigration Review, the head chief immigration judge does nothing. Uh, the complaint uh, from the SPLC and Human Rights First, which uh, which they sent up last week, uh, said one that a judge said this to a man who had grown up in the United States. The judge said if he were truly an American, he should be speaking English, not Spanish. Um, SPLC observed the hearings of 436 people, so a much larger study uh, than was held uh, in, uh, in, 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 in Atlanta uh, in, earlier in the year. Um, and uh, the complaint, for example, they say this, the complaint describes how Judge Sandra Arrington stands out for her lack of professionalism and hostility toward immigrant detainees behavior warranting reprimand, suspension, or even removal from the bench, according to the complaint. And this is true. We have filed a number of complaints against Judge Arrington um, for these things. Arrington, who goes by the last name Dempsey, but is referred to as Arrington in EYR records, began hearings with one immigrant by prejudicially noting that he had a huge criminal history comprised of nine convictions for driving without a license over 15 years ago. It was Arrington who told Latini he should speak English if he grew up in the U.S. and believed he was an American. She also refused to allow two attorneys to appear on behalf of an immigrant, stating that they may be one lawyer per case, despite attorneys explaining they had filed the necessary paperwork. Two attorneys, however, were allowed to appear on behalf of the U.S. government. Judge Trimble, Dan Trimble, according to the complaint, denied bond for a detainee without looking at the bond motion. He also rarely refers detainees to the detention's legal orientation program, which provides information about court proceedings and offers assistance. The Department of Justice must take action to stop this behavior that is undermining the legal system. More about this is just uh, about this complaint. Uh, you can read at the SPLCenter.org uh, website. Uh, it's dated Oct- uh, August 25th, and it is just really stunning. For example... A number of detained individuals and local legal petitioners reported that Judge Arrington, in off-the-record group presentations, has often informed pro se respondents from Central American countries that they will not receive relief. Before the start of master calendar hearings, Judge Arrington reportedly has separated pro se respondents from those with counsel by asking one group to sit on one side of the courtroom and the other group to sit on the other side. Central American respondents reported that, as they heard through the interpreter, I.J. Arrington then informed them they would not receive asylum, withholding of removal, or convention against torture relief. 
Such broad negative statements to pro se respondents by their nature indicate preferential treatment of individuals who have representation. Such treatment contravenes the judge's own rules. Of course it does. Um, she does this. I mean, we know she does this, which is why we filed numerous complaints against her. She should not be on the bench. She should not be. And it is, it is uh, derelict of EOIR, uh, the BIA, and, and the immigration judge's uh, uh, system to allow her to continue to be a judge. It's just, it's improper. Um, at least one pro se respondent who wished to file an appeal was not able to obtain the required written information before the expiration of the appeal period. Another pro se respondent reported Arrington discouraged him from appealing his case by explaining he would be detained for an additional four months while the appeal was pending. The appeal would only result in his case being remanded back to her. Wow. Wow. Um, it, is, uh, it is just stunning. For example, others report that the judges set prohibitively high bonds. You know, bonds are supposed to be able to ensure your appearance at your next hearing and be given to people who have, uh, who can demonstrate that they're not a flight risk and not a danger to the community. That's it. That's all you have to show. But when the judge sets a $50,000 bond, you might as well set no bond. It, it is inherently wrong, and those cases are frequently reversed by the Board of Immigration Appeals four months later. Um, and uh, the complaint itself is, uh, is excellent. Uh, it contains uh, a lot of very detailed information uh, and suggests different recommendations on monitoring the judges uh, in court with other judges present. Um, uh, so I, I, I'm just uh, I, I'm curious as to what my friend James McHenry, who is now the chief immigration judge, or at least acting chief immigration judge, will do with this report. Uh, I think James is an honorable man. I've known him for a very long time, uh, and I hope that he will do the right thing here and uh, and take Judge Arrington off the bench because she should not be hearing cases. It's really that simple. We wouldn't tolerate this in state court. You wouldn't tolerate this from a magistrate court. You wouldn't tolerate this from the justice of the peace. Um, and we should not tolerate it in immigration court at all. It is something uh, that it is not um, uh, um, uh, not proper, and it is not who we are uh, as a country. Um, now, David, before we take our next break, I, there was an interesting tidbit last week that came out that I found fascinating. Uh, and that is that states in the United States have passed already this year twice as many immigration laws as last year. Twice as many. I mean, that, that's just stunning. States are very actively involved in passing laws that touch on education, enforcement, refugees, sanctuary cities, um, and some of them actually protect undocumented immigrants. Others actually help and, and encourage immigrants. Others are designed to get rid of immigrants. So 27% of these laws relate to budgeting, so funding for immigration reinforcement, immigration education, migrant refugee programs. 21% were related to law enforcement, immigration enforcement, legal services, or consumer fraud, and kudos to the city of Atlanta for being very actively involved in consumer fraud and uh, now looking at uh, helping uh, immigrants with legal services in immigration court. Uh, 14% deal with IDs and licenses. 13% dealt with civics and education and uh, residency immigration requirements for higher education. Um, 
So it is is interesting to see that that state legislatures, uh, county officials, city uh, officials, are becoming more and more um, involved uh, in uh, in the immigration debate uh, and how that affects their individual places. And what I find interesting is that the cities tend to be much more open to immigrants than states. Uh, and I just find this curious. But then you look at the state legislatures and you see in the states that go after immigrants, they generally are states with very large uh, uh, rural areas in which, leg- in which legislators from the rural areas outnumber the city legislators and thus can pass whatever they want. Uh, it's not necessarily a Democratic and Republican issue. It's more of a rural city issue. Uh, and we see it as something that will have a negative impact on cities trying to be controlled by the rural areas. Let's take a break here, our final break, on the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. Soy Charles Cook, del bufete de abogados Cook Immigration Partners. Si usted tiene problemas con inmigración, llámenos hoy. Conocemos la ley. Sabemos cómo ayudarle. Si hay algo que se puede hacer, nosotros lo podemos hacer. Llámenos a las 404-816-8611. A las 404-816-8611. O visítenos por el internet a la www.immigration.net. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. Whether cruising the strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on americaswebradio.com. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. I want to touch briefly on one of these state bills, uh, David. Uh, you, as a as a native Texan, um, may be familiar with SB4 out of Texas, a racially discriminatory law, uh, which begins to be implemented on September 1 in Texas. Uh, my own organization, the American Immigration Lawyers Association, uh, was scheduled to meet their annual conference, 3,500 lawyers in Grapevine, Texas. You don't know what Grapevine, Texas is, do you? Do you know what Grapevine, Texas is? Outside of Dallas, middle of nowhere, nothing going on there but vast wastelands of prairie and sagebrush. Um, we have removed our conference from Texas because of SB4 uh, and are having it, and you can only guess where it is. I bet you in one guess you could guess where we're going for our What's that? Oh, no, my gosh, no. I'm not going to go. San Francisco, David. I thought for sure you'd drop on San Francisco uh, right there. Um, but So you've got, uh, this is a quote from um, Mario Carrillo from America's Voice. Local police from across the state are already stressing the negative effects from racially discriminatory SB4. 
Immigrants in their communities are becoming increasingly fearful of interacting with law enforcement for fear of deportation. And this will only become worse if SB4 is fully implemented. Advocates from across the state continue working with local elected officials and police departments to push for policies that don't criminalize people of color and ensure that their towns and cities remain safe and welcoming to all Texas. Um, This is going to be a very interesting bill. So this bill uh, bans local law enforcement agencies from adopting patterns or practices that limit cooperation with ICE. Sheriffs, police chiefs, and jail administrators face Class A misdemeanor charges and fines up to $25,000 if they violate the law by instructing officers not to inquire about immigration status or comply with so-called detainer requests to transfer jailed immigrants to ICE custody. Now, what's fascinating about this, this provision is that it really runs directly contrary to the Supreme Court case uh, in, uh, in the Arizona case uh, where uh, in the decision written by Justice Kennedy, they did not strike down the provision that authorized local law enforcement to inquire about immigration. They did not strike that down. But what he said was, I don't see how you can enforce it in a non-racially discriminatory manner. Don't see how you can do that. But because there are no facts before us, we can't rule on its validity. Now, that speaks volumes. Now, Georgia has a similar law in place, which allows local law enforcement to inquire about the immigration status of people they arrest. That's the law in Georgia since HB 87. Again, the uh, federal court did not strike down that provision, but what it did do would say the same thing. There's no evidence that this happened. And so, from my experience in Georgia, since HB 87 came down now five years ago, there has been no use of that law, to my knowledge, by local law enforcement, except maybe on a sporadic basis, but certainly no overall use. People aren't being asked when they're pulled over for speeding to show me your papers. Uh, Because unless you ask everybody, which they're not going to do, uh, there's no way to implement it without being discriminatory in the process. Um, and so this law, I think this provision may actually be struck down preliminarily by the district court. As you know, David, the governor uh, and or the attorney general of Texas sued in a preemptory, ma- uh, preemptory declaratory judgment action to get a federal court to rule that the law was valid. That, that case was, that was thrown out by the judge last week. But, uh, several cities are suing the state on similar grounds saying it should be, it should, it should be stopped, uh, and an injunction put into place because it's not on its face constitutional. Um, it's, uh, it's gonna be interesting. Edward Garcia, uh, is a sheriff or police chief in the little town of El Ceniso. Um, he goes back and forth on his support for the state's new sanctuary cities ban. El Ceniso, which was the first city to sue the state to stop the law's implementation, sees the good law can bring, sees the good the law can bring. In Kalmelka's border community around 40 that's safer by identifying criminals un- criminal unauthorized immigrants asking from the country. But he said it can also separate innocent families. Garcia refused to join the lawsuit because of mixed feelings, but he doesn't know how his four-person semi-volunteer department will carry out the law. Because you can't. That's the problem. It is, it is on its face unconstitutional. And, I th- and I'm pretty sure 
that the courts in Texas will actually rule that way. They will rule that it is uh, it is facially discriminatory law. And because it's facially discriminatory, I think it's going to get tossed out on its ear. Um, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, now, the final thing we want to talk about today are the jobs that are going to be lost under the Cotton-Purdue bill. So a study that came out of Wharton, you know, that crappy school, Wharton, only losers go to Wharton. Oh, wait a second, Donald Trump went there. I guess we can't. That really great school, Wharton, of the Ivy League, University of Pennsylvania's business school, said that Cotton-Purdue-Trump Raise Act, which really should be the R-A-Z Raise Act, not the Raise R-A-I-S-E Act, because it's going to raise immigration completely, would result in 4.6 million lost jobs by the year 2040. It also found that the U.S. economy would be 2% smaller than it would be under the immigration policy during that time. Of course it will, because you're going to eliminate people coming to America. You're going to eliminate job creators. It's just, it's just crazy. You're going to shrink the pie. Um, if you have fewer workers, we will have less economic growth. You know, duh. Um, economists say that the U.S. economy depends on foreign workers to grow the labor force and maintain growth. And here's why. This is, this is just really interesting math, because it's, it's just simple. Baby boomers have been retiring at a much faster pace than the U.S. job market has been growing. There were 27 million foreign-born workers in the U.S. last year, and yet there are 6.5 million open jobs in America today. Immigrants, especially new immigrants, are highly productive. And if we decrease that number, that will, have, that will harm economic growth in the short and the long run. Now, of course, the anti-immigration fascist people have come out and said the Wharton study had major methodological, methodological faults and the economic gains has come at the expense of American workers. No, these people really, they think the pie has a certain set circumference. And it simply does not. It simply does not. Um, at the end of the day, Eliminating immigration to America makes us weaker. It makes us less of an example to the world, and it hurts our economy and our growth. I mean, as a baby boomer, it boils down to this. Who's going to take care of you, your kids? You better hope so if there's no immigrants around, because there's not going to be anybody else to take care of you. Immigrants are really there to help us bridge this gap to the next generation. Um, think about this. According to the Census Bureau, more than 2.1 million immigrant entrepreneurs in the U.S. don't have a bachelor's degree. Of those 2.1 million, 445,000 have business construction and more than 100,000 in landscaping or building services. Under the RAISE Act, it would be impossible for an immigrant with just the highest level education to qualify for a green card. Impossible. Impossible. Okay, so who's going to do construction? Who's going to do landscaping? Who is going to staff the hospitals? Who's going to cure cancer? Who is going to invent the next Google or the next Tesla? Or, or who's going to build that rocket to Mars? I mean, the, these are things that these studies have found uh, that one in ten Americans in the private sector are employed by an immigrant-owned business. One. Two, immigrants are twice as likely as U.S.-born Americans to start their own business. And three, immigrants own more than one-quarter 
of Main Street businesses in the U.S., including over half the grocery stores and one-third of the restaurants. Um, this idea that you're going to raise wages for working Americans and increase the portion of college immigrants, that's just, it's just fallacy. There's literally no economic evidence for that. None. When asked for economic evidence, he was told, just look it up. Well, there is no economic evidence. Uh, it's not a conversation starter. It's a conversation ender. And that's why ultimately this bill will never see the light of day. I never should. It should be buried in a deep grave and covered with manure and, and put to compost uh, and, and spread its ashes over the ocean in 50 years. Uh, that's where it should be. Now, one last thing, David. Let's not forget the deportation machine is still operating on Trump. Uh, and he has still behind President Obama. Oh, well. You know, still behind. Uh, uh, I wonder how much longer he'll stay behind. The idea is that he's going to get more judges in place so we can deport more people faster. Yeah, I'm just not sure it's going to happen. You know, it, they just don't have the number of immigrants that you can deport these days. It's just not going to be them. It's it's more feelful for people. But at the end of the day, a lot of these people that now get put into deportation, a lot of them have the ability to fight and stay. Dave, it's been a great show this week. I know you've enjoyed it. And if you have any questions, listeners, email me at ccook, C-K-U-C-K at immigration.net. Any complaints, go right to David at david at americaswebradio.com. Until next week, this show is Charles Cook on the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. Thank you for listening. It's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.